Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm part of the teaching team here, and it's great to have you with us this morning, uh, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Just really glad to have you here today. Thanks for coming out on this cold, snowy February morning. But it is nice and toasty in here. So uh, welcome. Um, If you've got a Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 7. Uh, We've been working through the book of Romans since back in September, and today we come to Romans 7, 1 through 6. Uh, You'll find it on page 549 in the House Bibles, 549 in the House Bibles. Now, in early 2018, Canadian clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson released his runaway bestseller, 12 Rules for Life. Since that time, the book has sold over 3 million copies and has topped the charts in in Canada, in the U.S., and in the U.K., And in the book, Peterson says that the world in which we live is a world of chaos. Things tend toward disorder and toward decay. Things tend to fall apart. And his 12 rules for life are what he calls the antidote to that chaos. It's a way to put everything back together. Here are a few examples of his rules. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Tell the truth. Or at least don't lie. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. And just for fun, one that I absolutely cannot get behind, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Now, I know some of y'all are cat people. Um, I am not a cat person. I am also not a dog person. I am pretty much deathly allergic to anything with hair other than people. So uh, I will not be petting your precious Fluffy if I see her or him running around anytime soon. So sorry, my apologies to you animal lovers. But the idea that Peterson puts forth is that if you follow these rules, then you'll put your life together. You'll stop the falling apart. You'll end the decay. You'll reorder the disorder. Now, whatever you think of Jordan Peterson and his 12 rules for life, what he's presenting is not something new. It's an ancient concept that pops up in new forms all over the world every day. At the core of it is this idea that we need rules for life. We need clear directions for what to do and what not to do. We need ten commandments. We need five pillars. We need an eightfold path. We need New Year's resolutions. We need laws. We need self-help books that give us instructions for how to improve ourselves. There's something innate within us as people that looks to rules to make us better, to make us right, to help us to escape from the chaos that so often is our world. Well, as we come today to Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul would not dispute Peterson's claim that we live in a world of chaos. But his antidote is quite different from Peterson's. So I invite you to stand with me. As we read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, 
you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, but now, but now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. As we walk through this text today, we're going to see not 12 rules for life, but one rule for life. Let me pray and then we'll explain. Father, thank you for this word. Your word is life. Your word is truth. Your word gives life and lights up our path. And I pray as we open it up today, God, that you would shine that light into our lives, that we would see the truth and beauty and glory of what you have for us, that we would hear your voice. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. And grab a seat. <clears throat> so one rule for life today. But it's a two-part rule. It has both a negative and a positive aspect to it. So here's the part one. Here's the first part. Don't rely on the rules. Don't rely on the rules. As we were reading our text... You may have noticed that the major theme of this passage is the law. The word law shows up eight times in these six verses. And last week in chapter 6, Phil, as he preached, he walked through where Paul addresses the Christian's relationship to sin. And here in chapter 7, Paul is addressing the Christian's relationship to the law. And when Paul talks about the law, he's referring specifically to the Old Testament law of Moses. The Ten Commandments and then the hundreds of other laws that explained and elaborated and expounded upon those original ten, that kind of core kernel. And for Jews, that Mosaic law, it stood at the very center of their lives. And obedience to the law, keeping God's rules, it was how they stayed away from sin and how they stayed close to God, how they made themselves presentable and right with God. So the law provided their rules for life. And so specifically, Paul is referring here to the Mosaic Law. Now, most of us here today, we're not Jewish, right? Some of, us, some of you may be, but most of us are not. And so generally, we don't look to the Old Testament Mosaic Law for our rules for life. But so often, in practice, we do the very same thing that the Jews of Paul's day were doing. We may not have the Mosaic law, but we still rely on some law or some rules for our standing with God and our standing in the world. There's some law that stands at the center of our lives. It's the way that we establish our identity. It's the way that we know that our future is going to be okay. It's the way that we determine how we feel about ourselves on any given day. And in some cases, that law is a religious law. So you're a good Christian who goes to church every Sunday, doesn't watch R-rated movies, only listens to K-Love, and never misses a quiet time. But in other cases, it's a non-religious law. You're a good student, or or a good mom, or, or a good dresser, or a good activist, or a good athlete, or a good business person. You're a good whatever, and you do all the things that a good whatever you are is supposed to do. 
You live by the rules of your identity. Your tribe has some code, some set of rules for how to live. And those rules are how you prove how good you really are and how you gain acceptance with your tribe and with others in your circle. And the thing about these rules is that we all have them. We all have them. And if you keep the rules, you feel good and you are good. But if you don't keep the rules, if you mess up, you feel bad. And you are bad. So by extension, as we look at the law in our passage today, you can think of it like that. The law is whatever standard you think you've got to live up to. Whatever rules you've got to keep to prove yourself in life. So that's the law. And back in chapter 6, in verse 15, Paul kind of dropped a bomb into the middle of his argument. He was talking about the relationship of the believer to sin, but in the middle of his argument, he makes this statement, the believers in Christ are not under the law, but are under grace. So the law was the center of Jewish life, and the rules are at the center of so many of our lives. And Paul just says, in the middle of his argument, kind of offhand, casually, nope, it's not the center. It's not it. And he just kind of drops that bomb into the middle of the argument and then just moves on with what he's saying. And so what he's doing here as we come to chapter 7 is he's returning to the bomb site to do some cleanup. He's coming back to what he said there in order to explain it and help us to understand what he meant. So look at verse 1. In verse 1, we see the general principle that Paul is going to unpack. He writes, The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So he's saying that there is an expiration date on the centrality and authority of the law. And that expiration date is your expiration date. It's yours. That expiration date is the day where you expire. See, we don't bring corpses into courtrooms to stand trial, do we? While you live, laws have authority over you. But when you expire, that authority expires. So that's the general principle. And then in verses 2 and 3, Paul uses this illustration of a woman in marriage to make that general principle concrete. Now, with this illustration, with this illustration, I need to be clear that Paul is not shaming women here, okay? You could read it that way very easily, but he's not shaming women here. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't use a woman in the illustration because he's trying to upset 21st century feminists. He uses an, a woman in the illustration because he's trying to be understandable to 1st century Romans, You see, Paul knew that if he used a man, the illustration wouldn't work for his original audience. Because in the first century Roman world, women had far fewer rights than men. And the marriage uh, contract, the marriage relationship was, was taken much more seriously for women than it was for men. So men could cheat, but women couldn't. And so Paul uses this illustration the way he does, not because he's a chauvinist, but because he's a clear communicator. So that's what's going on here. And he says here, look, when you get married, the commitment you're making is for life. It's a lifelong commitment. And if you shack up with someone else while your spouse is still living, that then would make you an adulterer. You're cheating and you're an adulterer. But if your spouse dies, you can go ahead, you can feel freedom to go on and marry someone else. Right? No problem. The marriage ends at death. And so he used that illustration to say that the point of everything he's getting at in verses 1 through 3 is that the authority of any law, the marriage law, but any law, It ends with the death. It expires when you expire. It expires when your spouse expires. It expires with the death. Now we come to verse 4. We come to the meat of this passage. 
Verse 4 presents Paul's main point. And with that marriage illustration lingering in his readers' minds, Paul writes, Likewise, you also have died to the law. So just as death sets the woman free from marriage in verses 2 and 3, a death also sets the believer free from marriage to the law in verse 4. The marriage is over, the old spouse is dead, and the believer is now free to belong to another. Now I said earlier, the first part of our one rule for life is don't rely on the rules. And what Paul says here is the reason why. What this part of verse 4 means is that believers in Christ are no longer under the authority of the Mosaic law. And we're no longer under the authority of any other rules that we might live by. We don't live by the rules anymore, whether it's Ten Commandments or Twelve Rules for Life or the rules of your particular tribe. We're not bound to the rules anymore. They don't have authority over us. We don't rely on them to make us or define us or save us or shape us. We're not married to that old spouse anymore. And for several reasons, that's a really good thing. Notice the way Paul describes our old spouse in this passage. In verse 5, he says that the law actually aroused the sinful passions of our flesh. In other words, the law stimulated our sinful desires. It brought out the worst in us. And you parents in the room, you know exactly what this is like. So imagine that you've got two kids. And one of your kids is a rule breaker. A rule breaker. So when you say to that kid, hey, don't do that thing. What does your rule breaker kid want to do? That, that thing, whatever that thing is, right? So you're, you say, hey, kid, um, hey, that stage is really high. You, uh, you could get hurt. It's really dangerous. Don't jump off the stage. So, so what does your rule breaker kid do? Well, your rule breaker kid goes all the way back to the back of the stage, gets a running start, and launches himself up off the stage, right? J- just me? Just my kid? No? Okay. Okay. I'm glad I'm in good company, right? Like, that, before, before you told him don't do that, It hadn't even crossed his mind. But as soon as you say, don't do that, he can't think of anything else. Right? The the very presence of the rule brings out this desire in him to break the rule. Right? The the rule, the law, it it stimulates this this rebellious desire in him, this sinful passion of rebelliousness. But you got another kid too. And your other kid is the rule follower. And what happens with your rule follower when you tell him, hey, don't jump off the stage? Well, I mean, your rule follower, your rule follower doesn't jump off the stage. He doesn't. He listens. He obeys. But what's going on inside his heart as he does? And he's sitting there and he's watching his his brother who just jumped off the stage and disobeyed and did the thing he told him not to and got himself in trouble. And what's going on in his heart is he's thinking to himself, I'm the good one. I'm better than him. I'm the one who obeys mom and dad. I listen. I do the right thing. That makes me good. You see, the law for him, it doesn't arouse the sinful passion of rebelliousness, but it it nonetheless stimulates a sinful passion. It's a sinful passion of self-righteousness, of self-justification, of I'm better than you. And so in both cases, you see that the law brings out the worst in them. And isn't that the way that it happens with us too? 
There's this rebelliousness inside of all of us that when we see certain rules, the very presence of the rules makes us want to do the very things the rules are telling us not to do. And when we do follow the rules, we so easily become smug and self-righteous and we bask in the glory of our own goodness. And in both cases, what's happening is the law is stimulating our sinful passions, our rebellious ones and our self-righteous ones. But the law brings out the worst in us. And then on top of that, in verse 6, Paul says that the law held us captive. It was like a prison that we couldn't escape. We were stuck inside of it with no way out. And this is what happens when you're married to the rules. See, if the rules are the center of your life, then you constantly have to prove yourself. You can never rest. You can never stop. You, you certainly can't fail because your standing, your standing with God or with your tribe or with yourself is based on your ability to keep the rules. And so if you mess up, you're out. And the law is always there, always reminding you of your failures, always reminding you that you're not perfect, always demanding that you do more and you try harder and you get better. Now just imagine if you were married to someone like this. Someone who's always on your case and just never lets it go. So you wake up in the morning and you look in the bathroom mirror and there's a post-it note there just for you. And it says, clean yourself up. You look terrible. And then you go over to the kitchen. And there in the kitchen on the table is a stack of dishes. All the dishes that you failed to clean the night before that have been piled together to remind you of the way that you failed the night before. And then over in the living room, you walk in and and there's your spouse sitting there scowling. And your spouse says, oh, overslept again today, huh? Nice to see you. When are you going to get your stuff together, honey? Constant reminders of your failures, of how far short you fall. Constant demands for more. What's a marriage like that like? I mean, it's terrible, right? And I hope that I didn't just describe any of your marriages. I mean, if I did, please let's, let's talk after the service. Come see one of our deacons or discreetly send an email later this week. I'm, I'm serious about that. Like, if that's your marriage, if that's where you're at, if your spouse treats you like that or you're treating your spouse like that, like, we, we need to talk. We need to work through this and figure some stuff out, right? But, 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 but a marriage like that is terrible. And if you're in a marriage like that, there are generally two main responses. One response is utter despair, where you just shut down. You, you, start to be, you just shut down. You start to believe what your spouse is saying. You say, yes, I am a failure. Yes, I am a loser. I'll never get better. I'll never succeed. So why should I even try? Utter despair. And then the other response, it's not the passive response of despair. Instead, it's the active response of all-out rebellion. Inst- instead of uh, shutting down, you, you while out. It's where you say, okay, you're going to criticize me for everything. I'm never going to meet your standards. So I'm going to start actively trying to make your life as miserable as, you, as you've made mine. So uh, I, I didn't get that stain out of your shirt up to your standards. I'll just burn the shirt instead. Oh, I I didn't clean the fingerprints off the TV sufficiently for you? I'm going to sell your TV and use the money to take myself on a nice little vacation without you. The only freedom I have is the freedom to be completely rebellious. So I'm going to actively exercise that rebellion in any way I can. 
despair and rebellion. Those are the two responses when you're in a bad marriage to a person. And those are the same two responses when you're in a bad marriage to the law. Despair and rebellion. And how many people do you know who grew up in churches where all they heard in sermons were constant rants about keeping God's rules that left them constantly feeling like a failure? And how many of those folks have now left the church and either shut down, just feeling completely wounded, or, or have, on the contrary, have gone crazy and started living like contestants on a reality TV show? Some, when they're under the rules, and the rules is all you hear with its constant demand, some, they quietly shut down. But others, they loudly while out. But most of them, in any case, they end up checked out from God and from the church. They just walk away. You know, for some of you here today, your understanding of Christianity is that what it's basically about is getting married to the law. To be a Christian is to keep the rules. And if you keep them well, God will accept you. But if you don't, and and you know you probably won't, then God is going to reject you. So the thought of becoming a Christian is about as appealing to you as deliberately marrying someone who you know is going to be a terrible spouse. You're just not interested. But here's the deal. Look again at what Paul says in verse 4. Likewise, you also have died to the law. He reiterates the point in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And what all of that tells us is that Christianity is not fundamentally about keeping the rules. Christianity is not fundamentally about keeping the rules. We've talked about this all through this series in Romans. The law, the rules, they can't save you. They can't make you right with God. They can't fix what's broken in your life or in the world. They can't be an effective antidote to the chaos. You see, our fundamental problem in life is not that we're just not disciplined enough in our rule keeping. Our fundamental problem in life is far worse than that. It's actually not that we're not disciplined, it's that we're actually spiritually dead. See, at the end of Romans chapter 6, in verse 23, Paul wrote, The wages of sin is death. The cost of rebellion against God is spiritual separation from him now and forever. And so our problem is not discipline, our problem is death. And last I checked, there is no amount of rule keeping that a corpse could ever do to undo death. It doesn't work that way, right? See, the rules can do a lot of things. The rules can show you how far short you fall. The rules can show you what you're supposed to do but haven't done. The rules can show you your need for an antidote. The rules can show you your need for a savior. But the rules can't be the antidote or the savior for you. And for that reason, the rules make a terrible spouse. So don't rely on the rules. Don't rely on the rules. That's part one of our rule for life. Don't rely on the rules. But 
If we're not married to the law and we don't just follow the rules anymore, what do we do? What do we do? And this is where we see part two of our one rule for life. Notice the next thing Paul says in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. See, our release from captivity came at a price. And that price was paid with the body of Christ. When Paul uses the language, the body of Christ, he's referring to Jesus' physical body. The body in which Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. The body in which Jesus perfectly loved and served both God and his neighbors. The body in which Jesus went to the cross and suffered and bled and died in order to purchase our release from captivity to the law. And the body in which Jesus got up out of the grave on Easter morning in the great resurrection. In that body, Jesus did not just discard God's law. He didn't just throw it away. On the contrary, what he did is he perfectly fulfilled it. He satisfied all of its demands. He did everything that it required, both in his perfect, uh, in his perfect personal obedience and in his substitutionary sacrificial death. Jesus fulfilled the law in his body. And because he did, because he did, through the body of Christ, now our bad marriage is over and we are free to remarry a new and better spouse. Look at the second half of verse 4. Paul gives the reason why Jesus set us free from the law. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Because of what Jesus has done on our our behalf, believers in Christ are now joined to him in a new and never-ending relationship with a spouse who will never die. Now when you think about our old marriage to the law, Versus this new marriage to Christ. This is a totally different kind of thing. See, Jesus, he is a fantastic spouse. He leaves you post-it notes on the mirror. But those post-it notes, they tell you how much he loves you and delights in you. You know, he, uh, he, he sees all your dirty dishes that you've left in the sink and on the counter the night before. But what he does is he takes them and he goes and he cleans them and he scrubs them off and he gets all the grime off of them for you and he puts them away nice and tidy in your cabinet for you. So you don't even have to worry about it. And Jesus, he, he gets up before you in the morning, but he goes down and he turns the coffee pot on and he makes you a cup of coffee. And then he's sitting there. When you come down into the living room, he's just sitting there waiting on you because he wants to hang out with you and spend time with you. Right? That's the kind of spouse Jesus is. He's that kind of spouse. Eager to be with you, eager to serve you, eager to draw you out and pull you in and invite you to a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship with him. That's what he wants with you. Now let me ask you all a question. How many of you have ever been in a relationship like that with someone? I mean, it doesn't have to be a marriage. It it could be a friendship or a dating relationship or a parent-child relationship or a boss-employee relationship but a relationship with someone who you really enjoyed and respected and admired and, and, who, and who really loved you and served you and cared for you super well. You know, what happens in your life when you're, when you're in that kind of a relationship? Those kind of relationships where there's this mutual love and admiration and joy, they have a transforming effect upon you, don't they? 
Like that relationship shapes who you are and, it, and even more, it shapes who you want to be. Far more than any rules ever could. I've, I've shared this story before, but, but, it, but it's appropriate, so I think I need to share it again today. Um, back, back when I was in high school and I was living home, at home with my parents, um, my, uh, my style game was weak. It was weak sauce. So uh, I lived in sweats and basketball gear, and I'm talking like, like I, I'm a medium guy, and I was wearing like XL, double XL tees and, and ba- baggy basketball shorts that were down below the knees. Um, Jay, can, Jay can attest, he, he rocked that game back in the day too. Um, and I thought I was super cool. I thought I was super cool. I thought I was a man, but, but in, re- in reality, like I had no style. And, and my mom, she tried to help me. She really did. So, so she'd buy me sweaters and she'd buy me khakis and she'd buy me shoes that weren't made for sports. And, uh, and, and she'd tell me, hey, you should, uh, you, you should dress nicer. And, and I'd, I'd rarely wear any of it. I, I, I didn't listen. I just didn't care. And even when I met Kinsey, when I was fresh out of college, uh, when I met Kinsey, the day I met her, I was wearing a baggy navy blue sweatsuit with running shoes. Now, uh, Kinsey, my wife... She was voted the trendiest girl in her sorority her senior year of college. So, like, my, my girl has got some style, right? Like, she, she knows how to dress. And I was wearing a baggy navy blue sweatsuit. But do you know what happened as we dated and our relationship got more and more serious? My style started to change. I started rocking sweaters and boots and jeans and khakis and, uh, and then my, my pants, they started to get slimmer and slimmer and slimmer until they were almost skinny, but not quite skinny. I still can't rock with that skinny jean thing. Like, I, I don't get that, but, you know, they're, they're skinnier than they were. But being in a relationship with Kinsey has transformed me. Like, my mom, she tried to get me to change. She told me I should change. She bought me stuff so I would change. But what it took... What it took for me to change was a love relationship with my spouse that really made it happen. And I share all of that because at the end of the day, relationships are far more transformative than any rules could ever be. Think about the way your friends and your family and the closest relationships you have have shaped who you are today. Some of those folks may have given you some rules along the way, but it wasn't the rules that formed you. It was the relationship with the people. And y'all, the same is true in a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with him will transform more, far more than your style. It'll transform your whole life. And so here's the second part of our one rule for life. Part one was don't rely on the rules. But part two is the positive counter to that. Don't rely on the rules But do rely on Christ. Do rely on Christ. Don't follow just the rules. Follow Jesus. Follow Christ, the one who does rule. Follow him. Rely on him. And so what this text tells us is that Christianity is fundamentally not about the rules. It is fundamentally about a transformative love relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who died and was raised from the dead on our behalf. Now that still leaves us with an important question. What does all of this mean for how we live day to day in the here and now? Since we're free from the law and now we're in this love relationship, does that mean that we can just go and do whatever we want all the time? 
right? We don't live under the rules. So have we therefore been given a license to go out and sin and just do as we please? Is that how it works? Well, I want to point out three things quickly in our passage that help us to answer that question. First, notice the language of verse 4 again. So that you may belong to another. What Paul is saying here is that even though we're not bound to the law anymore, we are nonetheless bound to the one who gave us the law in the first place. Believers in Christ belong to Christ, not to ourselves. Second, the last part of verse 4 is what is known grammatically as a purpose clause. It gives the purpose, the, the reason why Jesus set us free from the law. And look at what Paul says there. We've been set free from the law to belong to Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God. So God saves us so that we will bear fruit, so that we will be little Jesus trees with Jesus fruit growing out of us. And that means that the fruit of our lives, the way we live and what we produce, what comes out of us, it still matters. And then third, look at the end of verse 6. So that we serve, we serve, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So Paul says we still serve God. We don't just do as we please, we do as he pleases. And so Paul says very clearly that belonging to Christ does not give you a license to sin. On the contrary, it gives you a license to serve. And it gives you the power to do it. Belonging to Christ means that you live for him. That you bear fruit for him. That you serve him with your whole life. That you do the things that he wants you to do. But... And this is the key. In light of everything we've said today, the way in which we serve Christ is totally different from the way in which we serve the law. Look again at the end of verse 6. The final line of this passage. We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, the old way was rules to follow. But the new way is the way of the Holy Spirit. When we come to Romans 8 in a couple weeks, we're going to talk a whole lot more about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's not, it, the Spirit is not an it. It's not the force in Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he's the third person of the Trinity. He is fully God. And he lives in everyone who believes in, G, in Jesus as God's permanent presence with us. The Holy Spirit is God's permanent presence with you if you're a believer in Christ. And he is the one who gives spiritual life to dead trees like us. And he's the one who makes real fruit possible in our lives. Now, I've asked you to use your imagination a lot today. But I'm going to do it one last time here to bring all of this together for us. One way to think about all of this, everything that Paul is saying about the Christian life here and our relationship to the law, all of it, one way to think about it is that it's kind of like dancing. So imagine you get a call up this week to go on the TV show Dancing with the Stars. Now, some of you, uh, I'm thinking of my brother Kwaku, who, who's down with the kids today. I talked to him beforehand, told him I was going to say this and give him some love. But, you know, some of you, like Kwaku, y'all can dance. There's like six of you in here who know how to dance, <laughs> right? But, but imagine, imagine that's not you. You're not one of those six. Imagine that you dance about as good as Pastor Jay. All right? I mean, just imagine, okay? Like, you're on that level, okay? <clears throat> so, 
You've been selected to go on Dancing with the Stars, not because you're a great dancer, but purely because some producer at ABC wants to show you some completely, entirely, totally undeserved love. Okay? That's why you're on the show. Now imagine that when you get to the show, this is what they give you. This is a diagram of some dance steps. They don't tell you a song. They don't play any music. You don't get a partner. All you get are some printed dance steps. Now, theoretically, you could learn to do something resembling dancing by looking at this. You could do the steps and move to the places where the steps tell you to go. And I suppose you could call that dancing. I mean, you could. It would be a little bit of a stretch, but you could call that dancing. But that's not really dancing, is it? It's just following the steps. Following the rules, if you will. And this is what happens when we rely on the rules in our spiritual lives too. It's like dancing without any music and without any partner. It's just steps. And dancing like that would be miserable. It's not the way dancing is supposed to work. And if you've seen the show, you know that this is not how it works. On the show, what happens is each contestant gets paired up with a professional, a legit professional dancer who then plays the music and then dances with them to teach them how to dance. Now, there are still steps the contestants need to learn, but they learn those steps by dancing with a real person to real music. Now, here's the point. In the Christian life, even though we're not under the law, we still need to learn how to dance. See, God is the great composer and the great choreographer. And he has a glorious dance that he's inviting us into. And he wants us to dance with him. But God doesn't just give us a sheet with some dance steps on it. No, what he does is he presses play on the sweet music of the gospel. And as that love song plays in our hearts, he gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us and to teach us, to be our partner, to teach us how to dance. There are still steps that we need to learn. But we learn those steps not by following rules printed on a sheet, but by feeling the rhythm of that beautiful gospel music and through the leading power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And even when we miss a step, even when we get off beat and we blow up the whole thing, God doesn't kick us off the show. No, he continuously and graciously invites us back into the dance so we can keep getting better with him. And so, yes, you need to get better. And yes, there are steps to learn. But one of the great ironies of the Christian life is that the only dancers who do get better are those who understand that their standing with God is not based on their getting better. Did you catch that? The only dancers who do get better are those who understand that their standing with God is not based on their getting better. They're on the show because he graciously chose them. They're in the dance because he invited them to dance. And they'll only get better as he teaches them to dance. So wherever you're at today spiritually, whether you would call yourself a follower of Christ or not, whether you grew up in the church or you just stopped by here today for the first time in your life, wherever you're at today, God is inviting you into the dance. He's inviting you to hear that sweet melody of the gospel, that song that says you're loved and accepted by God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. It's about you to hear that music and then to lay down whatever rules you've lived by and to take his hand, to let him teach you the dance steps in a relationship of love and grace. He's offering you one rule for life. 
And it's don't rely on the rules, rely on Christ. And if you will follow that one rule and you will rely on him, if you'll follow his lead, you will find the antidote to chaos and the remedy for what's wrong in your life and in the world. Dance with him and let him lead you safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the great composer of the beautiful gospel song and as the great choreographer of the beautiful gospel dance. We thank you so much for the invitation, the completely undeserved invitation into your dance that you have given us. God, we confess that we're terrible at this dance thing. Even when we try to follow the steps on the sheet, we don't get it right. We miss over and over again. And yet still you come to us and you invite us to come and take your hand and dance with you. And so I pray, God, today that that would be true of us. God, that we would uh, walk away from the bad marriage to the law and enter into a marriage to you, a relationship of love and truth and grace and forgiveness and mercy where we can be taught by you, by the one who loves us, how to really live and how to dance through the chaos of this world in a way that lets us thrive and enjoy and, and, uh, and just celebrate. So God, I pray especially for those who, uh, who are here today who have never taken your hand, that today they would grab hold of you, that they would uh, hear that gospel music playing in their hearts, and they would say yes to Jesus. They would say, I want to rely on you and not on myself, not on the rules, not on the law, not on anything else, but I want to take hold of Jesus. Would that be true for some of us here today? And we just praise you. We give you thanks. Help us to dance well and even dance to the music we're going to sing here in a moment. Pray that in Jesus' name.